You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm with Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and not Dr. Mark Kissler. He not only could not be available at the hospital, but he says he's being crushed right now. So that means he's crushing it himself at the hospital. So we can't hear back from him. So good to see you again, Stephen. How you been, buddy? Yeah, it's good to see you too, Matt. I'm doing all right, all told. Good, good. I know it's, it's, I don't know uh, how to respond to that. Yeah, exactly, so really, I got to like, find, a, I've got to find a new question because right now it's really hard to answer the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, instead of like, it's, unless we just say it's complicated. That's right. That's right. And it's, <laughs> it's okay. Go, it's okay. Uh, good to have you here. And it's good to chat with you again this week. A few things that want to get before we get started. First and foremost, one before I forget to give a shout out to my nephew, Sammy Long. He graduates today. He's going to walk via his car. So that's interesting. I think at 4.30 p.m. he's in San Diego, California. So Sammy, uh, congratulations. I'm excited to see you in about an hour and a half on Zoom before we see you walk. So congratulations. And uh, a couple of things. Thank you guys all for the wonderful reviews on Apple Podcasts and all the other venues that you can leave reviews for. So greatly appreciated. We need more of them to help rise us to the ranks so we can be seen and known. I know this provides a lot of value to a lot of people to give a sober analysis of the pandemic in the context of everything else that's going on with the Black Lives Matters and all these things that are just exacerbating the, 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 the difficulties that we face right now. Another particular review I want to read right now. This is from Mel, GPLC Buff. She says, go Buffs, right? See you. Alum to love hearing your expert thoughts. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on what schools should look like in fall. I know all of us working parents with little kids are super interested because the distance learning and rotating schedules, especially for elementary age children, are just not sustainable for the long term. Keep up the great work. So I might pick, see if I can pick Stephen's brain a little bit about what he thinks about elementary schools or schools in general. Uh, I know it's difficult. This makes me just so excited that I have kids that uh, are not in school right now because that's just a whole other level of like complexities. Yep. So even though it's it's still painful to, to have the little rugrats run around nonstop. Patreon, if you want to support us, we're still looking for some awesome donations to help us fully fund the equipment that we're purchasing. You can do that at patreon.com. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month can help a lot. Just a one-time gift, if that's what you want to do, PayPal or Venmo. That's all in the show notes. And then again, I have a new podcast coming out or a new episode coming out next Wednesday because they're bi-weekly called Living the Real. You can go to livingthereal.com, sign up. I have a conversation with Kim Winter, who is a partner at, Le- at Lathrop, I think. It's a law law firm there in Kansas City. We talk about meditation and how it saved her life. So it's coming up next week. So sign up to uh, get that and subscribe to Living the Real podcast. Okay, I think let's get straight into the news. Again, when we go seven days without chatting, hanging out, there's just a lot of stuff, even though I really want to frame this with, did the pandemic leave? <laughs> did it just go? Yeah, it sure seems like it sometimes, I, doesn't it? I feel like I, I, we were talking about this outside of the recordings because there's things I just can't say publicly to everyone. I wish I could. You guys are all friends, but there's just some things. But man, I'm feeling this kind of otherworldly experience to a deeper level. Like I feel, well, I don't want to use a very terrible line that's actually pigeonholes people, but I feel not like, I feel like anomaly to the rest of the world. I feel like I'm this outsider and I feel it more and more and more. And it's just been really hard. 
And now with the pandemic leaving, I'm like, should we continue this podcast? I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Nobody is talking about it. Nobody cares. But it's all the more reason and I'm more excited to have this episode because it is real. It's still there. And in fact, it actually might be more there than it was three weeks ago. So in, in a big extent. So let's talk, let's talk about this. So Stephen, I had a friend send me this text message and I saw this the day, the, the, the day prior. So, but I had not read the article. It was asymptomatic spread of coronavirus is very rare, the WHO says. So first when I read this, I'm like, do you know my initial reaction, Stephen? Ah, crap. This sucks. Because I just <laughs> knew this is going to cause some kind of like turmoil or some kind of suspicion. And yep, the next day I had a friend post this to me on text and just says, interesting, dot, dot, dot. I'm like, oh man, come on. I'm like, what do you mean by interesting? Mm-hmm. There's nothing. So I need you to start right here. Explain this. What do the WHO mean and what's the difference between asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic? And are they lumped in the same context in this particular article? Yeah. So the, the, the problem is they're, they're not lumped in in this particular article. And if you, if you go forward about, I don't know if it's maybe 24 hours, maybe a little bit more, there's another statement from the World <laughs> Health Organization saying that they regretted saying this because it led to a lot of confusion. And <laughs> because, and, and it did because, so, so here's the thing. It's like, what, what do we mean when we're saying very rare and like very rare compared to what? So, right. So, COVID is is very very transmissible, right? We yeah. we know that it's it's more transmissible than the flu by 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 the measures that we have. This reproduction number that we've measured, it's about three. So you're 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 if you're infected, you're expected to pass it on to three other people. But but if you think about the number of people that you normally come into contact with, far fewer now maybe, but in the general course of things, you're going to come into contact with far more than three people over the course of your infectious period, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, we're already speaking of, even though it's a very infectious disease, we're already sort of talking about a rare event in some sense. That's even if you're symptomatic and you're transmitting something already, right? Sure. Now, certainly if you're symptomatic, you're more like, you're definitely more transmissible, probably substantially more transmissible than if you're not actively showing symptoms. Mm-hmm. So the thing that, 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 that sort of blows my mind about, about that statement is like, okay, so, so it is, true that, you know, we're still trying to measure and get our hands on what exactly are the relative rates of transmission between people who are asymptomatic, which means you never show symptoms, pre-symptomatic, which means prior to showing symptoms, we know that people can be very infectious the day or two before they start showing symptoms. And that's, that's not what they're talking about at all yeah. in, in this, in this WHO statement. And then symptomatic transmission. So my response to seeing that World Health Organization claim was that, you know, Yes, they say that it's very rare, but we would not have a pandemic on our hands if asymptomatic <laughs> and pre-symptomatic transmission were not a major player in this epidemic, right? Yeah. That is the reason why we were able to keep track of SARS, the original coronavirus that spread, and why we have not been able to keep track of this one, mm. period. I mean, it was, back in February, when we started to realize that this was an issue with SARS-CoV-2, that's when I knew that this pandemic had our number. Like that, that's when I knew that this was a problem. Like that, that's yeah. when I knew that, that, that things were not going to look good uh-huh. because it was precisely that, because that's what, that's what keeps you from, from seeing what's going on. And so even if it's a very rare event, the fact that you don't have symptoms means you're not modulating your behavior. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it contributes to overall transmission and into the trajectory of the epidemic in a very important way. So. I think that's that's the difficulty here is is even if on an individual level scale it might be a rare event, nevertheless it is the reason why we have a pandemic on our hands. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. so this didn't help anything. I mean, right. And what's the context of this? Like because what are they trying to respond to? I mean the WHO because are they? I mean what makes this 
this news. I mean, I know I get it the next day that, that the WHO regretted this. So first, the conclusion is get a PR person might be really helpful to help <laughs> them kind of help them know how to present information in a way that's helpful to right. us. But what's the context of this? Like, what, does this really change anything for us in the sense of, say, a month ago, I know we were seeing kind of... Uh, we were seeing information come out about, we were noticing, I don't know if it was pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. I have no idea which one it was, but mm -hmm. seeing that there are people who didn't have signs that had quote, what I, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm just using the scientific jargon, quote, viral shedding more than a person with symptoms at times, right? So we, we were seeing this, we were seeing episodes of people who didn't have symptoms having large amounts of viral shedding in their system, mm -hmm. which of course would probably lead to a sense of like, okay, this could probably be spread. So right. is there any difference? I mean, is there new science or is this just wrong information? Like uh, what's, what's, what's going on with this wishy-washy stuff? Yeah. So it's the World Health Organization has made a couple of statements. So sort of my perception of a lot of the things that they say is that they're very good at being scientifically accurate and it, it is it is the case that there's we're still gathering evidence about asymptomatic transmission early on in the epidemic. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast where they they said that there was no evidence of asymptomatic transmission, right? Yeah, but yeah. what that doesn't mean that there is evidence that there's not asymptomatic transmission. It's just that they were saying a scientifically accurate statement, and but that causes a lot of confusion because it's interpreted in 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 sort of a broader way. And so I've realized that, that when, when thinking about the World Health Organization statements, you really have to just like absolutely <laughs> take them at their word and uh -huh. uh, because any extrapolation from it can, can lead to danger. And so I, I don't actually know what exactly they were responding to. Yeah. I know in the, in the statement where they said that they regretted saying it, that they were said they were responding to a couple of particular studies and it was in response to a particular statement that was in the context of a conversation. <laughs> and so, so, so I'm not entirely sure what the dynamics were there, but. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I think that's that's the issue is that you can say things that are scientifically accurate, but that are nevertheless misleading. Yeah. And I think that they've been in that situation a couple of times over the course of this outbreak, which is just kind of an unfortunate spot to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was really helpful. I, I just, I was mind blown by this article and and I know, and, and part of this is, I think we talked about two weeks ago of, I mean, now this isn't necessarily a scientific community changing their mind. But the idea that <laughs> this is kind of a new thing and as evidence circulates and granted, you know, the, you know, maybe a month ago, these unique circumstances that the WHO saw of communities who did extraordinary measures to be able to do, what was it like, you know, cross-reference and check all of the people they were, they were exposed to showed maybe that they're, it, it's harder to be, you know, transmitted through asymptomatic, right? It's a new right. stuff, but nonetheless, you know, we get more information, things change that it does not lead to the fact or any kind of idea that this now is conspiracy. And that's, that's what blows my mind. Like, I love what you said to me, Scott, like, oh yeah, scientists typically think of changing mind as the pursuit of learning. I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we have a, we have a lot to learn from that, which is <laughs> ironic. So in light of that, so you, you talked about the fact of the matter is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a pandemic on our hands if we didn't have such an easy amount of transmission through this virus. That leads us to the other big news, right? I've seen this a lot more hitting headlines, uh, even though it's harder to find headlines right now that are that that are COVID related. Seeing Texas hitting new peaks 
on hospitalizations for COVID. It seems for a couple of days now, I think at least two days in a row. I see an article here that the data suggests the pandemic could be coming back with a vengeance. Of course, every time I see these dramatic terms, I'm a little cautious of what that vengeance means and how that's compared to. Uh, again, uh, coronavirus spike, 14 states and Puerto Rico hit the highest ever seen daily averages. And then, so I have one more question too, but that's on the opposite. I want to start with this. What are you seeing right now going on? I mean, there's theories out here that Memorial Day contributed. Maybe now we're just seeing the effects of Memorial Day. And I want to talk to you in just a few moments and you can hit it on the radar, but I want to go deeper with the, with the whole protests and the marches that are going on right now and how that may contribute. But where do you see the U.S. going right now? Are we, are we starting to like lose that, that momentum uh, and starting to slip? Or is this just kind of the normal cycle of things? What, what's to be expected in the next few weeks, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of states that are starting to see spikes in cases. And I think that it's hard to attribute them to any one thing in particular. Yeah. It seems like Memorial Day could have contributed. I mean, that yeah. we know, you know, that's... It seems like with other respiratory illnesses, there there is often a holiday effect where, like, for example, over Christmas, you have people mixing with different people and then coming back. And then a week or two later, you see spikes in flu cases, things like that. Sure. So yeah. you know, this, this is something that we know happens. And and I think the big question is whether that spike will be sustained. You know, there's there's always a temptation to see a spike and then just draw a straight line through it and say, you know, in three weeks, we're just going to be, you know, this is going to be awful. Sure. And that's, that's probably not going to be the case either. I think, it, you know, the answer is probably going to be somewhere in between that we're going to see spikes in cases in some places. And certainly as places are beginning to open up, some places have opened up more than others and, and we'll start to see more transmission. And again, just sort of the, some of the randomness of this epidemic will kick in too. Again, we know that, you know, a lot of the transmission that happens depends on, you know, early super spreading events and places where a lot of transmission occurs and whether or not you had one of those early on will affect, you know, how many cases you have in a couple weeks time. So there's a lot of uncertainty here, but it, it, it's not surprising to me that there are a number of places where we're seeing cases go up. There's also an increase in testing, which is leading to the number sure. of cases going up. But but the one that the one that really caught my attention was Texas, as you said, because if we're seeing hospitalizations going up, then that's yeah. really something to pay attention to, because those are transmissions that happened three or four weeks ago, and that means there's a lot more coming down the pipeline. And so I think that that's that's something that we'll have to watch very closely. And that I, th- I think basically speaking in a bigger picture we might be entering into one of these phases where we were talking about early on how there might have to be this intermittent nature to this yeah. physical distancing where we sort of open up a little bit, but then we might have to clamp back down again and then open up some. And I, and I think we might be on the cusp of us realizing maybe in a couple of weeks time that uh, we might actually have to like tamp things down a little bit again or risk again, overwhelming health systems and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be a difficult balance and not least because of some of the things that you just mentioned. Um, sure. And now you mentioned a couple episodes ago about how you saw in previous pandemics where initially it hits New York, it hits cities, and then down the road, the second kind of wave or what do you call different ways of, of, of surges or waves that it then begins to hit the rural community, communities. And I saw a couple articles suggest that maybe that now it's starting to kind of hit the rural communities. Have you seen that at all yet? Or, or is, I, I'm just wanting to know if that, is that starting to per- percolate in rural communities or is that still maybe a little ways potentially away? As far as I can tell, it seems like that might still be a little ways away. I think, I think that might be beginning to some extent, but it really seems like the cities are still the hotbeds of transmission yeah. at the moment. And then on the flip side of this, 
Now, I don't know how old this article was. So it could, I mean, sometimes things change so quickly, day to day. So this might be a few days old. I don't know if it's still the case. I don't know if you read it as well, but I it was like, why Georgia's coronavirus cases haven't mm. surged after its reopening? So I don't know if it's still the case, Stephen, but at least at this point in time by Vox, it's suggesting that Georgia's is kind of an outlier right now that still hasn't quite surged after its reopening. Do you have any insights to why, if, if that's still the case, and if so, why that might be the, the outlier or the anomaly in Georgia? Yeah, I, I don't think I have much to add other than, than what was included in, in that Vox article where they were essentially, I mean, one of the statements that they said is maybe maybe it just hasn't happened yet. I mean, there, there is an element of, of luck to this and, of, you know, the timing can be quite variable just depending on, you know, when you have like these real sparks, the super spreading events. They were talking about how maybe people haven't actually changed their behavior as much as, you know, like opening up a lockdown sounds very dramatic, but we know that people are kind of doing their own thing with respect to this. But that also doesn't explain why not Georgia and why certain other places like Florida and, you know, Texas and sorts of things. So it's not totally clear. My my sense is that it's it's probably more of just a not yet sort of thing and that the timing of these surges will will just be different in different places. But I don't have any I don't have any clear answers to that. Okay, great. Well, you know, part of the as we get into the deep dive, I, the the biggest thing I want to kind of talk to you about, Stephen, is it's been hitting me a little hard, a little bit harder lately. Is you know I've been really working with you and Mark and all these things about dealing with how we need to do social distancing, do our best, do our best, be our best at really helping to keep this at bay until we can get a vaccine. At the same time, being able to make sure we keep the economy going and, and ride this hard, this balance. And then we have the protests come in and the grieving of George Floyd and the the the, the rightful protests that are going on. And I'm not so much concerned about the actual physical protesting I, I do. It does worry me, right? Because as we just talked about, how the black community can be up to two two times as susceptible to 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 pretty harmful consequences of COVID. So it, th- that concerns me. But the biggest thing is uh, just uh, this this article that I saw. It was it, the title was "We often accuse the right of distorting science, but the left changed the coronavirus narrative overnight." And I really felt like I was beginning to see this, where some of the people were like, "There were you know he, he quotes an epidemiologist, not you." Thankfully, maybe they all just say, no, this is, this is okay. This, this is a pursuit of, of healthcare. And I get that part. I get the sense of, I get the spirit, the spirit of what he's saying, but it concerns me because I feel like science is starting to go out the window. Like let science be science, let politics be politics. And I'm seeing this, okay. At one point in time, the night before it was nobody go outside, 10 people at max, keep six feet apart. And then overnight, a narrative began to change of like, but it's okay for having hundreds of people to come together and protest. And I know people are against the violence part. I get that part. But just coming together, it's scary to me, not only on the fact that people are doing this and risking, but just the science community at some level, I feel like they're kind of like, now I'm starting to, it's starting to chip away my trust. So can you speak back to what's going on, on your side as an epidemiologist in Harvard and what are your conclusions about this and what do you think about all this? Yeah, so we've been thinking and talking an awful lot about these protests and and trying to make sense of them and make sense of sort of where they sit in in the public health sphere and and what we ought to be doing with them about them how how we ought to be responding as as uh, people who are dedicated to upholding public health. So the the Guardian article that that you that you just mentioned I think has some important points, although I think it's also 
full of quite a few straw man arguments. <laughs> so, I mean, there were, there were a lot of sections in there where, where I, I'm glad that I wasn't on uh, being recorded as I was reading the article. Because, uh, there, <laughs> there, there were a few, there were a few eruptions, shall we okay. say, in response to, in, in response to what, what was being said, especially. Uh, and we'll, we'll put those in the after, after show. We recorded right, those. Bloopers. We watched him. I had a little camera. It's hilarious. No, just Fantastic. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, so there there was this the bit that got under my skin with with the article was was when the the author was talking about how I don't remember what what group he was saying whether it was scientists or liberals or academics or what have you were were blithely calling for these shutdowns and it's like there's there, there's been nothing blithe about any of this right <laughs> sure. we 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 have not wanted the lockdowns to happen you know like this this was not and we, and we recognized that we were really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And especially there seemed to be in the, in the article this accusation of of sort of this two-facedness and this sort of ignorance of poverty and of the fact that like poor people were going to suffer the most from from the lockdowns. And that's 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 been clear from the start too, as well as the fact that poor people are the ones who are going to suffer the most from COVID as well, yeah. right? And so so lit- like that's what we were weighing from the very beginning of this is that people are going to die and or Actually, and but but and people are going to lose their jobs, and the, both of those burdens, as with every societal burden, is going to be felt most by the people who are most impoverished, most vulnerable, these sorts of things, and so that was that's the dilemma that we're in, and that's the dilemma we've been talking about this whole time, and so there there was sort of this false sense of like you know these people were out of touch and were calling for this lockdown, but didn't really pay attention to the no- to the downstream consequences and sort of thing. Like, it's just not. <laughs> That's, that's just not an accurate assessment of the history of events. Like that's just poor history right there. So, so there's that. And so then there's the question of like, okay, so what do we think about, about the protests themselves and thinking about, you know, you're absolutely right. We're having these gatherings of, of hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people together. And that, and that, that is, that is not physical distancing, ladies and gentlemen, you know, that <laughs> no, is, no. you know, and, and, and it, it's, it's not right. It's, it's simply not. And, and that's the fact is right. That, that presents a substantial risk for transmission, for sure. And I think we need to be upfront about that, right? Like we're we're not saying all of a sudden that these protests are safe or that that you know that that these things don't matter. You know, the, the the protests themselves will will contribute to the transmission of illness. So also will the hundreds of people that flocked to beaches over Memorial Day weekend and all of the people going to casinos and gambling right now, where there's also not an awful lot of social distancing going. Right. Sure. So there there are a lot of things that are happening right now in addition to protests that are going to contribute to the spread of, of disease. Now, there has been, certainly I know in my local area, there, with all of the protests that I've seen and you know, caught wind of, there's been a real emphasis on physical distancing to the extent that people are able, bringing masks. I know of volunteers from local hospitals who are bringing hand sanitizer to hand out to people and making masks to hand out to people, doing our best to mitigate the effects of, of, of COVID during these protests, right? So so that's that's really one important thing is that these these protests aren't being held you know, in, in some sense, it's not really in spite of COVID, but it's, it's, it's recognizing that, that these things are contemporaneous. And, and so that's sort of what's happening. So I think, I think the last thing is sort of, so how do we think about, how do we think about the events that are happening from a public health perspective? Because I'm, I'm an epidemiologist and that's what I do. And I think that that's the place where I can sort of shed the most light. So, so I think that we can, we can, one of the arguments that, that, that was set forth in, in this Guardian article and that, that I've heard a lot of, a lot of people raise is that, you know, race, which is really at the root of the protests that we're seeing right now is, is, is an incredibly important aspect, but it's only one of many aspects that lead to poor health outcomes, right? There's, there's race, there's poverty, there's incarceration, there's, you know, 
imperfect housing, all sorts of things, you know, that, that sort of conspire to lead to poor health outcomes. But I think that what's one of the things that we're thinking about as in, in, in public health is that, you know, how, how do all of these potential causes relate to one another? You know, if you list them off, it sort of seems like this laundry list of things that contribute to poor health outcomes. But then, then we have to sort of, if you'll indulge me for a moment, let's, yeah. let's, let's take a moment and sort of think, think, think through, sort of do like a bit of a logic game in a sense. So, so let's think about like this, this list of things that all contribute to poor health outcomes. And, there, if we, if we think about then sort of how, how do we order them? How do we think about their relative importance and like which comes first, which is principal, which is secondary? How do we begin to make sense of this, right? So we can ask ourselves, you know, which ones precede which others? You can imagine that poverty could lead to incarceration or to, to some of the other downstream effects and these sorts of things. So could one's race, right? Race, race could contribute to, to poverty in, in all sorts, in all sorts of different ways. And so, I think that race is a really interesting factor here because of the things that I mentioned, it's the only one that can't be the result of any of the others, right? You can't be poor and then become black as a result <laughs> yeah. of that, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't work yeah. that direction. And so yeah. even though these things are definitely all deeply confounded with each other and, 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 and you can't ever attribute a single cause to anything just by virtue of the epidemiological evidence, by the fact that we know that racial minorities are more likely to suffer much more severe health outcomes of all varieties race must be upstream of these things, right? Because it it is it can affect these others, but these others cannot affect it, right? And so we know that race is one of the things that's lying at the headwaters of a lot of a ton of these public health ills, right? And so to sort of finish off the argument here, right? So so we have we have race as this there's this potential factor that that is affecting all of these downstream outcomes. And then and then the question is so so how does that happen? Why is it that race affects these things? And and the only two alternatives that I can think of is either that there's something intrinsic about race or there's something extrinsic about race. Like it's either the the difference either comes from within or comes from without. And I think that, you know, fundamentally sort of like if, if you think that there's something intrinsic about a racial minority that makes them more likely to be impoverished, like that's, uh, aside yeah. from being, you know, blatantly like that, that, that yeah. is sort of the definition of racist, right? Like that's, like that's, that's sort of what we're outlining right now. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. And so, and I think that, the, you know, beyond that there, there's a thousand, you know, there's so much evidence to, to reject why that would necessarily be the case. So what we're left with is that there are extrinsic factors that make race a contributor to the things that lead to downstream public health effects. Right. And so, and, and that, that is the definition of systemic racism. Right. And that's, that's what these, these protests are about. And that's why I think a lot of public health professionals have really gotten behind them in a lot of ways, because we know that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but this issue lies at, you know, is one of the things that lies at the headwaters of so many other things that we have dedicated our lives to improving and fighting that, that, that it's important, you know, and, and we can't really say like, well, let's, let's, you know, I know that this, these awful things happened and there's a lot of sentiment around protesting right now, but let's just call them off for two years till we get this pandemic under control. Mm. And then, you know, we'll just, we'll just start it up again. Once everything is safe, you know, that, that, that really won't work either. And so, so, so we're, we're again stuck in a dilemma. And I think that, that the problem here is that the story of COVID is a story of dilemmas, right? It's a story of things happening at the wrong time, at the wrong place to the wrong people. And, and we, we get in these, in these situations where, you know, when we start lobbing accusations at different people for being, you know, hypocritical and stuff, it's, it's ignoring the fact that all of these decisions are being made when we're really stuck up against a wall. And, and so we're trying to make decisions and make priorities on the fly. And I can really sympathize with people who are arguing that this issue right now 
is worth the risks. And we can mitigate the risks of coronavirus, knowing what we know now in a lot of different ways. But I can I can really sympathize with the fact that that this the, this time and these protests are worth the risks. Man, Stephen, you're a good man. I can see going back weeks with Mark and you and just seeing how we joke in his tongue in cheek that it's okay, it's complicated. And the one thing I want to pick out with this is that I think what you've exposed is maybe it may not be the epicenter, but it's a it, it is a core maybe tenet or tenets of the complication because there's one set of criteria as a scientist and that's the data. That's the information. That's about the virus, what it's doing. And that has its own game plan. That has its own agenda. That has its own um, predictions and advisements to the world. And then there's story, which you guys picked up on narrative, Mm -hmm. which is not, it's, it's not extrinsic. It's intrinsic to the data. And I think you've hit it so well that there's two things you as scientists are trying to put together, and that is the data of COVID and the story of racism, of systemic mm-hmm. racism, and, and seeing how these actually two come together to create a pretty terrible situation. And, and, and so it's so easy for so many people on Facebook and social media to point the finger at uh, the hypocrisy of how dare you shut down the casino, but then not allow people to protest, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or allow people to protest. Right. And that is taking simply data and principles without any human flesh and story on it. As mm-hmm. if somehow the casino has the same value <laughs> and right. contribution as, as systemic racism and, 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 it, and its consequence to overall well-being of humanity and particularly to the healthcare system. So thank you, Stephen, for, I mean, you, you shed a lot of light because I, I intuitively, I, I felt like, gosh, we, we, we should allow them because your idea of, well, let's just wait two years. And then I know this, I know that I personally experienced this where if you, if you, if there's something that happens and it stirs up true emotion, it's a just cause. And then you postpone it for something. It never picks back up again because yeah. we all know that the intellect is not very strong when it comes to motivation, right? It is emotion. It is the feeling of the story of what happened, the tragedy of George Floyd. And this is clearly not a singular event. Uh, This is just the icing on the cake after already a lot of turmoil. Mm -hmm. And this, this is a necessity. And we see the consequence of this, of man, Stephen, I'm learning so much that if it was postponed, and again, it's not about learning, it's about, it's about actually doing something. I get that. I don't want to be ignorant of that. But I think first and foremost, I do need to learn something that I haven't been, been, I've been ignorant in the past. And I don't think it would have been the case. Oh, I know without a doubt, if we would have postponed these, the effect would have never happened. That needs to happen. So thank you, Stephen, for, for sharing that. that. That helps a lot. Okay. I think that's all we've got for now. This was an awesome way to end. You know what? Let's ask one more question. Totally random. Just to end on a fun, happy note, right? Yep. Uh, in, in, in the sense that you'll probably not even have an answer. That's how happy it'll be, right? <laughs> it's always good when you stump the scientist, right? So we oh went boy. back to that uh, that uh, review from Go Buffs, and she mentioned about, gosh, I'm, I'm clearly she must have elementary school children. I'm guessing that's the case. And she's like, what what would you suggest? Do you have any concept or idea? I mean, way at the very beginning, Steve, I remember the very first episode. You were, we were like, this is way back in March 9th before we even knew hardly anything, right? And you were saying, we don't even know if kids can even transmit it mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, I don't, I don't know if things are different now, but that was March like 5th right. or something like that. And so, because we're not seeing any evidence of that, 
Uh, is there has there any been any more advancement? And do you have any idea of what you might suggest about elementary school in the fall? Or are you just as blank and, and deer in headlights as I am right now? <laughs> oh boy, yeah. There's there's some deer in the headlights right there. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's going to be really hard, right? And it's just like every state and every city has taken their own approaches to these different things. <laughs> it's probably going to be what happens this fall too. It, some of the some of the options that I've heard is that some schools are going back for a couple days a week, so that they have you know half their students on Monday, Tuesday, and half the students on Wednesday, Thursday, and you know, sort of doing like a, a shift sort of thing, which allows for some in-person uh, instruction. But I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what working parents do with that, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. And you know, this is this is another one of those dilemmas, right? That comes up where, you know, we're, yeah, talking about school closures, that that's like, that's that's never something that we want to do because it, yeah. it sounds like such a simple intervention, like such a simple, yeah. you know, like just keep the kids at home, right? They'll stop from transmitting illness, but like, <laughs> yeah. what a what a hugely disruptive thing, and yeah, you know sure. what a difficult thing it is for families to 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 cope with. It does seem like kids are probably about as good as tran- at transmitting COVID as as anybody else, as far as we can tell. That's that's where the weight of evidence seems to be pointing recently. So, again, thankfully, it, it doesn't seem like they're. Yeah, it seems like they're pretty rarely at high risk of severe outcomes. So I think that's a good thing. But, but yeah, I think that it's not totally clear what things are going to look like. I think that though, now that we know, we're beginning to know more about transmission. I think that we'll probably. Do do our best to create spaces within the schools as well that make it less likely for kids to transmit to each other. So you know, this is something that I I haven't put a lot of thought into, but I know a lot of people have, and I think that people are really using the summertime right now to try to figure out how to do this because it was all just really rushed at the end yeah. of this last school year oh, to yeah. try to figure things out, and there were a lot of things that you know just didn't go very smoothly. So my hope, I guess, is just that administrators are really using this time, as I know they are, to really think about how to how to help students in the fall and and how to support families. It's a difficult thing, you know, and I yeah. my my heart really goes out to to everybody who you know. Who has kids in school right now? It's it's just it's just a really hard thing. Mm, I know, and and on maybe this that if it's any help, which I doubt it is, but our our oldest would be going into kindergarten this year for the first year. This is this next fall, mm-hmm. and uh, in light of the pandemic, we just decided we're homeschooling for this first year because we just didn't know what was going to happen, and we're like for his first year of school. We just didn't personally like who knows he's been playing yo-yo back and forth. And there's something like, oh, we want his first year to be like the solid year of like, hey, I'm here and we're all having fun. And there's just to me unknowns and it just has to be a weird transition year. And so we're like, you know what? Forget it. We're gonna do the hard work of homeschooling just for this year to figure out what's how this all ends with hopefully then reintegrating him into first grade, you know, into 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 school uh in the next year when it's all said and do, said and done. We just didn't want to deal with the complexities of the situation. So my heart goes out for all the parents who are struggling with what, what on earth. And, and like you said, this is so systemic again to poverty. I mean, what do you do when the, when school's canceled and so many kids rely on food for lunch and how quickly this was taken away in this past spring? And I heard a number of articles where it really hit some poor communities pretty significantly, obviously so. So I'm, I'm way more than hopeful that this fall will have much more support behind it and have a lot more intentionality and planning to re-engage the, the kids back into the school system. Okay. Well, once again, if you have any questions for Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R at Twitter, any questions for me, uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. If you get a chance, we had another one just the other day, send an email. We, we just, it's good to hear what's going on in your, in, your, in your world right now and how we can help and be a support. So that's Matt 
M-A-T-T at livingthereal.com. So email me, we'll put you on the show, hear what's going on in your side of the world. Again, if you want to be on the, if you want to hear my other podcast, Living the Real, go to livingthereal.com, sign up, sign up for the newsletter. We have a great episode coming out next Wednesday. And I think that's it. Hope you guys, oh yeah, if you want to support patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal, all in the show notes. Have a wonderful week. Congratulations to all you who are graduating this this year. Sorry you couldn't walk and walk virtually, but we will see you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye.